0: God, we come here this morning and we are hungry to hear from you, uh, from your word. Lord, we are here today and most of us, if not all of us, uh, are in need of something. We're in need of of hope, of uh, forgiveness, of purpose, of peace. Um, But God, Lord, we confess this morning that our greatest need is you. God, we want to encounter the living God through your word. And so God, be our teacher this morning. I pray that you'd use your word to encourage us, to convict us, to challenge us. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you know anything about me, you know that I love salty foods. In fact, if I have a decision to make late at night for a late night snack between sweet or salty, I'm going salty every single time. Uh, In fact, who else can relate with me on that? Are you more of a salty person? Raise your hand. Few of you, okay? Predominantly a sweet church, okay? Makes a lot of sense. Um, that's why our donuts go go, go out so fast. Um, well, right now, you can ask my wife about this. I love. I'm like obsessed with these um, these kettle potato chips from Costco. Kind of the wrinkle cut. And the chips are just dumped on with like Himalayan salt. It's like all Himalayan salt, a little bit of potato chip. But I love that. It's like my go-to snack late at night. I just love kind of a a savory, salty uh, snack late at night. It's amazing when you think about the impact that salt has on our food. I'm not a food scientist, uh, but I do know that the chemical properties of salt do not change. In other words, salt is always salt. For example, if I had a small cup of water up here this morning and I put a teaspoon of salt in there, it would be almost unbearable to drink. It'd be way too salty uh, to actually consume. But if I had 100 gallons of water and put a teaspoon of salt in there, it would barely uh, uh, be detected within that 50 gallons uh, of water. See, salt is always salt, but salt uh, can lose some of its taste, some of its distinctiveness when it's diluted by the environment that it's in. Now, why do I share this with you this morning? Well, I share this with you because Jesus tells us about his followers in Matthew chapter 5, that you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. See, Jesus tells us that we are the salt in the world, which means we are to have a positive impact, a preserving impact, a noticeable impact. We are to be in the world, but be distinctively different from the world around us. Now, the challenge is, and I think part of the the danger is that just like salt, we as Christians can lose our distinctiveness When we become diluted or when we compromise because of the environment that we are in, that we can compromise on our convictions and therefore no longer be distinguishable from the world around us. That salt is always salt, but it can lose its flavor and it can lose its influence when it either becomes too absorbed in the environment that it's in or when it becomes too secluded from the environment that it's in. And this is part of the reason why I'm so excited to study the book of Daniel. I'm so excited to be able to walk through kind of Daniel's life here because I think Daniel provides for us a helpful picture of what it means to be salt in the world. What it means to be in the world, but not of the world. See, some 2600 years ago, we find Daniel who is placed in a very challenging environment and yet doesn't compromise on his convictions. In fact, he holds fast to his convictions while exercising wisdom in the environment that he's in. As we noted last week, Daniel opens chapter 1, verse 1, with a national crisis. God's people in Judah have been taken over by this juggernaut, this evil empire called Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And this was the first of three besiegements that Babylon uh, had over Judah. This happened in about 605 B.C. The third one will occur in 586 B.C. with the complete destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. Now, what we learn in verses 3 and 4 is that while they left the majority of God's people in Judah, they did take some of the young children, some of the, the teenagers from the elite class, they took them captive, and they deported them back to Babylon, and this included Daniel. Now, last week, we kind of explored the question about what this would do to our faith. Remember, we kind of tried to put ourselves in, in their shoes, having some of our children and our teenagers being taken away all the way to Babylon. This presumably, I think, created a crisis of faith among God's people In fact, we looked at Psalm 137 last week at at some of the things that they were experiencing. It says, "'By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, "'Sing us one of the songs of Zion.'" But then they asked the question, "'How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land?'' I think in part, Daniel is written in order to answer that question. And I think it's a really important question even for us as believers here to know how to answer. How do we live for the glory of God? How do we live as salt in this world without compromising on our convictions? Well, as we walk through chapter one of Daniel, I'm going to point out um, numerous observations uh, throughout Uh, this passage. The first thing I want to point out and kind of unpack for for us a little bit is Babylon's attempt at indoctrination. In verses three and four, we we learn about Babylon's plan for these young Hebrews. They had a a systematic indoctrination program. Now, just a reminder, uh, these Hebrews that they took from Judah are some of the best of the best. They're good-looking, they're intelligent, they're competent and skillful. But King Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly what he is doing. He knows how to run an empire. He's one of the most powerful people in the entire world. What he's doing is he is taking these young, impressionable youths, and he is trying to brainwash them with a three-year program. All right, That's what he's doing, and his goal is to take these Hebrews... God-centered biblical worldview and demolish it, that he wants to change their values and their convictions, how they thought about themselves, how they thought about God, how they thought about the world around them. And there are four steps to this indoctrination program. Let me point out each of them. The first one here, and we've talked about this already, is that they relocated them. They took them from their homeland, Judah, and they traveled 900 miles All the way to Babylon. Now this new environment for these Hebrews would have been a shell-shocking experience. No familiarity. No known routine. No common structure to help reinforce their belief system. No family. No temple to worship God in. And for some of these Hebrews, presumably, not Daniel and his friends, but for some of them, this is all that was needed for them just to walk away from the faith. This is all that they need just to kind of give up on God. And we can see that because that happens to some young Christians every year, that as they graduate high school and they change their environment and go off to college, statistics show that a great number of those freshmen in college just give up on the faith, that they walk away from following the Lord, both at Christian colleges and at secular colleges. Why? Why? It's because a change in environment reveals if faith is truly your own or if it's just a byproduct of the environment that you've been in, or if it's just your parents' faith, or your siblings' faith, or your best friend's faith. This is what the Babylonians were trying to do. They were not only trying to create a crisis of faith, they were trying to demolish their faith with this new environment, with new temptations new ideologies, and new religions. So that's step one. Now, step two in this indoctrination program found in verse four is to re-educate them. Okay, so not only relocate, but re-educate them. We're told in verse four that these young Hebrews were to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians. Now, it's important to understand that Babylon at this time was the center point of all learning that happened uh, throughout the world. And these teenagers excelled in this program that we can, I think, uh, safely assume that for at least Daniel and his friends, they were able to discern what was congruent with their faith and their worldview and what was not. And whatever didn't match up with their worldview, they were able to not allow that to impact their convictions. Right Now remember, there's no option to homeschool here. There's no option for a Christian school. But what they did have was discernment. What they did have was a God-centered worldview. What they did have was training from an early age, from their moms and their dads, preparing them for this moment, so that as they're going through this three-year education program, they're able to be discerning about what matches their worldview. And for them to protect their convictions found in God's word. And we're going to learn more about that throughout this book. But the third step here in this indoctrination program was to rename them. Verses 6 and 7. We learn that at least Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah graduated this program. They excelled. They were able to serve the king. But as a result, they they were given new names. Now this is significant. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant Yahweh is gracious. Mishael meant there's no god like our God. Azariah meant Yahweh has helped. It's a very God-centered names, Yahweh-centered names. And those wonderful Hebrew names are now replaced with names of the Babylonian gods. Now and that was intentional. Like, this is a statement that the Babylonians are making. Like, for us, if we kind of change our name, there's some significance to that. But during this period, most of the time, your name was connected to the God that you worshiped. So the Babylonians are sending a message. They're telling these young Hebrews every time their new name is called, their name that's connected to a Babylonian God, they are sending a message that Yahweh has lost and that our Babylonian gods are in control. It's very intentional. And they're trying, again, to brainwash them, to indoctrinate them, to form within them a new identity. They're changing slowly the way that they thought about themselves, about the world, and about God. Look, I think it's important to realize that you and I live in a very similar culture. It may not be as overt or obvious, But we live in a culture that wants us to lose our saltiness. The world wants us to to compromise on our convictions, that we are constantly, every day, bombarded with false gods. We're constantly being lured away, at least attempted to be lured away to these idols, to these temptations that want our allegiance, that want our affections, that want our priorities. That we're exposed to dangerous ideologies and worldviews on a daily basis. That we live in a land that's far more like Babylon than Jerusalem. A type of culture that not only wants to conform us, they actually want to deform us. It's very similar to Babylon. Now the Babylonians here, they remember they have a four-step indoctrination program. We've just looked at three of them. The relocation, re-education, and the renaming. And at this point, Daniel and his friends are accommodating just fine. They're, they're kind of accepting some of these steps. But this fourth step is where they drew the line. And it has to do with food. Now, for them, they draw this line because the Babylonians were trying to remoralize them. And before I kind of explain the significance of this, let's just kind of back up for a moment. Better understand what's happening here. If you look at verse 5, it says that the king assigned these young Hebrews a daily portion of his food and wine. But if you jump down to verses 8 through 16, we notice that Daniel's resolution was not to defile himself with eating this food. Instead, Daniel asked King Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff if it would be okay not to eat the food or the drink. And then we see in verse 9, we see God's activity once again. God is not just sitting on his throne taking a nap. He's active, he's sovereign, he's in control. And evidence of that is that God gives Daniel favor and compassion before the chief of the eunuchs. Now, the chief sends Daniel to the specific person assigned over Daniel. And Daniel very boldly, confidently, but respectfully offers a solution He tells them, he goes, hey, I've got an idea. How about you allow me and my friends to eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days, and after that 10-day period, just evaluate to see who looks healthier and stronger, us or these other individuals who are eating the king's food and drinking the wine? Well, he agrees, and sure enough, after 10 days, Daniel and his friends look healthier, stronger, and in the Hebrew, it says that they actually have more fat on the flesh. Now, how in the world is that possible? Like, and, and just, just to be clear, this passage is not calling us to over spiritualize and come up with the Daniel diet, right? I will never follow the Daniel diet. But this is amazing here. Like, this is a work of God. This is actually a miracle. And this is often overlooked, when you think about the book of Daniel, if I I asked you this morning, hey, tell me specific examples in the book of Daniel where you see God's miraculous power. Almost all of us would highlight the fiery furnace. Almost all of us would highlight the lion's den scene. Almost all of us would highlight, you know, God's handwriting on the wall during King Belshazzar's party. But how many of us would point to God's sovereign activity in Daniel chapter 1? Like, church, this is a miracle to eat just vegetables and drink water for 10 days and not just not lose weight, but actually gain weight. This is God who is at work, who is active, who is interceding for his people. Don't miss it. Now, the question that I think we should wrestle with that's very interesting to wrestle with is why did Daniel and his friends select This moment to draw a line in the sand. Why the food? They didn't do the renaming or the re education, the relocation. Why here? It's kind of a bizarre place to kind of put your foot down and say, no, 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 we're not going to eat the food. You know, personally for me, this is, this would be a hard one. This is the best food in the world. And yet they draw a line in the sand. That's a really important question for us as Christians to ask. How do we? know what lines to draw and when and how. How can we be salt in the world and not lose our saltiness by drawing the right lines in the sand? Well, here, I think we can learn a few things about Daniel's example. In fact, I think that there are three reasons why Daniel and his friends draw the line here. And from each of these, I think that I'm going to come up with like a different question that can help us understand how to draw a line in the sand today. Here's the first reason why Daniel draws the line here. It's because eating the king's food would have clearly violated dietary and ceremonial laws found in the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, that many of the foods that were served to the king in the king's court included pork and horse flesh, and they were not properly prepared, so they violated the ceremonial and dietary laws found in God's word. Okay, so we're not talking about a preference issue here. We're not talking about an issue of the conscience where it might be okay for some of God's people to do and you know, for others it's not. This is not a gray area. This is black and white, chapter and verse, Daniel could go to to help direct how to draw a line in the sand, all right? So that's helpful for us because the first question to ask is whatever environment that you're in, school, in, in the workplace, wherever, you're, try, you're trying to figure out what, how do I draw a line in the sand? A good question to ask is, does this violate anything that God has clearly said in his word? If it does draw the line in the sand, right? Now, I know that's kind of obvious for us because we're people of the book, but we got to start there, right? We got to start with what has God clearly said as it relates to ethical and moral standards for his people and to draw lines accordingly. Now, the second reason Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food is because the food would have been first offered as a sacrifice to the Babylonian gods, okay? So Daniel and his friends They did not want to be associated, even indirectly, with pagan, idolatrous worship. It would have negatively negatively impacted how the Babylonians would have thought about Yahweh. And so I think another good question to ask as we're discerning what lines to draw is this: Is what I'm being asked to do, does this negatively impact my reputation as a Christ follower? that you may be asked to do something that's not necessarily or directly sinful. But the question is, in what I'm being asked to do, does it negatively portray who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and what Christianity is all about? I think that could be a helpful question to ask. But then there's a third reason here. The third reason here is, I think, quite interesting. Because for them... I think they refused to eat the king's food in order to clearly show to the Babylonians God's might and power. I want you to think about this for a moment. Daniel and his friends are part of this three-year program, right? And the end goal is for them to serve the king, right? I have a very prestigious position. And each step, each aspect of the indoctrination program had some kind of connection to the Babylonian gods, right? The relocation, let's bring them closer to the Babylonian gods. The re-education. let's expose them to our different religions, to, to who the Babylonian gods are. Let's rename them. Let's give them Babylonian god names. And of course, the food here was first sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. And so if Daniel and his friends flourish, if they succeed, if they do well, who will these people give the credit to? Who will the Babylonians point to and glorify because of how well this program did? They're gonna to point to the Babylonian gods. But if Daniel and his friends refuse to eat the food and yet they look healthier and stronger, ah, now the Babylonians have to give credit to someone else, specifically to Daniel's god. to to the Hebrews God, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he and he alone is the only one who can do this miracle. See, for Daniel and his friends, they draw this line in the sand because this would most glorify God. This would draw attention to him. I think that's another good question to ask ourselves as we're drawing lines in the sand. Am I being asked to do something that would hinder my ability to glorify God, to praise God, or to give God credit? If so, draw a line in the sand. So I think Daniel and his friends, they provide a really helpful picture of what it means to live with conviction and also wisdom. But there's something else that I have to point out about this. Because a lot of this can be kind of glorified as this, yes, we want to be bold and courageous, and we should be. But understand that drawing lines in the sand, refusing to compromise, is risky business. This is hard. This is costly. Okay, I want you to think about all that Daniel and his friends risked. They put on the line because they held to their convictions. Let me point out a few. Number one... Refusing to eat the king's food was an act of disobedience to the most powerful individual in the world. So they put their lives on the line. This is a physical risk. But not only that, think about the amount of peer pressure that Daniel and his friends would have gone through for three years. Everyone else is eating the king's food. And so they are putting on the line kind of their their relational and social aspects, a relational risk that they run. And then thirdly, I think that they jeopardize their chances of even advancing or graduating. There's kind of even a financial risk, if you will, by, by refusing to eat the king's food. And then the last one here, maybe the hardest for me personally, is just the quality of the food. It's the best food in the world that they give up. They give up the comfort and the pleasure of good food. This is amazing what they're willing to sacrifice and give up in order to hold fast to their convictions. Now, I've studied Daniel several times in my life. Like, I, I feel like I know his life. But one of the things that blew me away this week as I was studying this and looking at, at kind of the details of this scene, one of the things that kind of gave me spiritual goosebumps, if you will, is how easy it would have been for Daniel and his friends to compromise. They are a long way off from home. 900 miles away from family. 900 miles away from accountability. 900 miles away from God's people. Who's gonna know? Who's gonna know if they disobey the, these dietary ceremonial laws that are somewhat obscure throughout the Old Testament? Right? You can almost hear the justifications that were maybe running through their minds as they're kind of talking, figuring out what to do, maybe they're saying, come on, Daniel, times have changed, right? The, the, the cultural momentum is no longer behind us. The majority are no longer with us. We need to be relevant now, Daniel. We're in Babylon. We need to focus on, on getting success here, on kind of creating our platform right here and right now. Right, giving up the food, that's not going to do anything. Plus, these, these laws are so outdated. They're so old school. Right? You can hear some of the justifications that they could have easily have grabbed and compromised on their convictions. And yet what's startling is that they didn't. They didn't compromise morally. They didn't become bitter towards God. They didn't blame God for all that happened in Judah. They weren't paralyzed with fear, and they didn't doubt God's plan. They obeyed. They refused to compromise. What's amazing here is that Daniel and his friends, they learned how to navigate the Babylonian culture to the degree where they avoided falling off the ditch of blind osmosis while also avoiding the other ditch of cultural isolation. They were able to live out their convictions with wisdom, and you and I need to learn how to do the same thing. Why? It's because a crisis, something like this situation that Daniel and his friends are in, crisis reveals what's truly inside of a person. Crisis reveals character. It doesn't as much build character. And so in these moments here, as we're thinking about being people of character, being people who are salt, holding fast to our faith, faith isn't just believing despite evidence. Faith is believing despite the consequences. And so when you think about difficulty and hardship and persecution even, all those things can go away. All you have to do is compromise. Compromise. It's that easy. All you have to do is use some form of justification in order to concede a little ground on the level of your convictions. And yet, Daniel and his friends didn't. In fact, Daniel and his friends could be described this way. J.C. Ryle says, let your Christianity be so unmistakable your eyes so single, your heart so whole, your walk so straightforward that all who see you may have no doubt whose you are and whom you serve. Exactly what Daniel and his friends do. They provide a picture of what it means to be salt, what it means to be an engaged alien who's in this world but not of this world, that they hold to the distinctiveness of their faith without retreating from their calling as a citizen, as an employee, as friends, and as neighbors. See, there's something else that we can learn from Daniel and his friends here. We can learn what our relationship should look like with the the world around us. And there really are three options. We can either reject the world, we can receive the world, or we can redeem the world by God's grace and through God's power. The first one here, that we can receive the world, meaning everything the world has to offer, we're just going to accept. We'll still be Christians, of course. We'll still go to church. We might even read our Bibles. But there's a high level of compromise that might take place by receiving everything that the world has to offer. Compromising what the Bible says, redefine sin. We just want to blend in with the culture around us. Be different, but not all that different. Or option two is to reject the world completely, to just retreat into our Christian bubbles, to remove ourselves from engaging with the world around us. Or option three, what I would recommend, what I think Daniel embraces, what I think the New Testament calls us to embrace, is to redeem the world around us through God's power and by God's grace, to live out our identity as an engaged alien, to live out our ultimate citizenship here in the world so that we are living lives where the watching world says, man, what makes you so different? That we actually live lives where they scratch their heads and they think, man, that's really attractive, what you have in Jesus, tell me more. And just by the way we live our lives, people are curious that they're, they're, kind of, they're pulled into Jesus And that will result in lives being redeemed in and through the gospel. I want you to listen to what the prophet Jeremiah has to say. Remember, Jeremiah was doing ministry in Jerusalem during this time. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon during the time of Daniel. And this letter gets sent to King Nebuchadnezzar and is read to the exiles but listen to what God has to say through Jeremiah. It says, Thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Do you catch what he's saying here? This is code for be an engaged alien. Like understand that you're a stranger here on the earth, but to be one that's engaged with the flourishment of the city around you. Notice, God is not calling them to become hermits and run for the hills, nor is he calling them to be these type of freedom fighters to try to, uh, to wage war against Babylon and gain military and political power. No, he's calling them to seek the welfare of the city, to seek its flourishment, its success, the good of the city by living out biblical principles so that by God's power, he might redeem and save lives. Like, that's what we want. Like, for us to be salt in the earth, we want lives to be transformed by Jesus. We don't want to win cultural wars or gain political power. We want people to meet and experience and be changed by Jesus in and through the gospel of Christ. Like, we want your coworkers to look at the way that you live, and to conclude that you're not only a Christian, but they're actually pulled into Jesus because you live so differently. We want our neighbors to not only know that we go to church on Sunday mornings, to not only know what lines in the sand that we draw, but we want them to be pulled in, to become curious about the hope that we claim to have in Jesus. Look, we want redemption, we want lives, Change. We don't want to retreat from the world or receive everything the world has to offer. We want to be an engaged alien. And look, at the very least, it demands that you and I know how to draw lines in the sand. What lines to draw on the sand and when? And so that's the question I have for you this morning. Do you have lines drawn in the sand? Do you know what those are in your life, in your orbit, in your world, your environment that you're in, whether at school or the workplace or the neighborhood or culture in general? Do you know what those lines are? It's much easier to have those lines drawn before you're put on the spot, before you're in the, the heat of the moment, because when you're in the heat of the moment, it'll be much easier to compromise. And yes, the reality is, is that we may not all draw the same kinds of lines or at the same time, but drawn they should be, and crossed they must not be. Let me give you an example, and some of you have actually gone through this, but let's say that you're working in the secular environment, and let's say that from leadership, there's a mandate that's passed down where all the employees must attend the pride parade in Indianapolis. What do you do as a follower of Jesus, do you attend that and perhaps by your presence kind of celebrate and affirm this lifestyle that displeases the Lord? Or do you draw a line in the sand? And how? How do you, like Daniel, was bold but respectful in the line that he drew? See, we need to be thinking through those kinds of scenarios and and more, dozens of other ones in order to be guided by God's word. So I think Charles Spurgeon helps us here. He says, the Bible is not the light of the world, it's the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible, the world reads Christians. And for us, yes, we're salt, we're also the light. And we need to shine brightly in the midst of a dark world around us by drawing the right kinds of of lines and also pointing to Jesus. So my encouragement for you is to let the Bible be your guide, not the culture, not what's comfortable or convenient, not your emotions, but allow the word of God to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path to follow this book and to hold fast to what it has to say. Now, the last thing that I want to point out this morning I think the main point of the book of Daniel is God's sovereign activity. I touched on this a little bit last week, but you get to verse 17, and we see the third occurrence in chapter one alone of God giving, God being active, God interceding here. And here, we notice God giving them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, but also Daniel has been gifted with understanding visions and dreams. Now, this is foreshadow because this is what separates Daniel in front of the king. But notice, Daniel makes it abundantly clear where this gift comes from. It comes from the Lord. All power really has heavenly origin. That Daniel wants us to have our focus be on God. That people, even like Nebuchadnezzar, simply serve God's deeper and, yes, at times, mysterious purposes. But look, chapter 1 is is putting on display God's sovereign power. Yes, it's subtle, but it is undeniable in order to bring comfort to his people who are looking around and they're saying, wow, we're no longer in Jerusalem here. We're in a different land. How should we live? How can we trust in God? Daniel is shining a light on God's sovereign power and control. Now, yes, we can look at Daniel's bold, wise, and courageous resolution to draw the right lines in the sands in the right way. And we can and should all learn from that. But make no mistake about it. Chapter one of Daniel is the, the focus here is not about Daniel, it is about Daniel's God. That the question we have to ask ourselves in reading chapter one is what does this tell us about God? What do we learn? about God. Because the reality is, is that you will only follow Daniel's example to the extent by which you actually know Daniel's God. So you can try to apply some of these moral principles, but without being changed by God, knowing God, trusting in God, following God, you will never follow in Daniel's example. And so what do we learn about God here? Well, we learn that God always gives his people exactly what they need when they need it. That God is both sovereign, but he is incredibly generous. God gives three different times. Remember verse two, verse nine, verse 17. God is giving his people what they need when they need it. And that is a dominant theme throughout the Bible. We are constantly seeing God sovereignly giving his people what they need. You go all the way back to the beginning. After Adam and Eve sinned, what did God give them? He gave them clothes in the form of animal skins. But what did God give Noah? God gave Noah instructions on the ark. What did God give his people when they were enslaved in Egypt? The 10 plagues. Like there is example after example after example of God's sovereign generosity. But church, do you know what the best one is? The best example of God's generosity? John three sixteen, right? God giving the world his only son. God generously and in his sovereignty, giving his people exactly what we need, when we need it, we needed a savior. And his name is Jesus. And 2000 years ago, God gave Jesus in order to die for our sins, in order to pay our debt, our penalty, because we are all sinners. And instead of giving us wrath and death, God in Jesus now offers and gives us eternal life and acceptance in Christ. So look, if you're reading Daniel 1 and you're enamored with Daniel's example and you're just so focused on Daniel and not focused on God, you're reading it wrong. (laughs) Chapter 1 is about Daniel's God, that we can trust him, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he does not forget about his people and that he gives us exactly what we need When we need it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much, God, that it is living and active. That 2,600 years later, after the life of Daniel, Lord, this chapter of the Bible is still relevant and powerful today. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. We also thank you for your spirit who lives inside of us that enables us to live by wisdom. And God, that is exactly what we need. Lord, as some of us um, find ourselves in difficult scenarios where we're trying to be salt and yet, Lord, we're tempted to compromise on our convictions, God, I pray that you would give us boldness and wisdom. Lord, help us to understand what it means to be the salt and the light. God, we want people to know Jesus. We don't just wanna be moral and ethical people. We want people to experience Christ. So help us to be that kind of people in the world in which we live in today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.